We come once again this morning to the book of Romans. Nancy asked me uh, when I was coming up from the study one day, so how is it going? I said, well, Paul hasn't run out of things to say. And that is very, very true. We are in the midst of a rich section here in Romans that is focusing on this theme that suffering leads to glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Specifically, suffering leads to glory because of God's sovereign activity. He uses it, he causes it to work together for good. We've seen the three groanings, creation, ourselves, the spirit causing us to groan, the spirit groaning through us. Six reasons for rejoicing. All things work together for good. We've seen that. Verse 29 and 30, that God will certainly bring us to glory. And there remains yet in Romans 8 for us to see that God is for us. God will not hold back anything from us and that we are not condemned, and then that inseparable love that God has for his people will wait for another week. We've seen our rich theological proverb that speaks about how God foreloves and he predestines to be conformed to the image of his Son, and he calls us and he justifies us and he glorifies us, starting in eternity past and moving on to eternal eternity in the future. Um, We've seen something of the order of salvation in the interest of time. I'm going to rush ahead to here. Matthew Henry. Back in the late 1600s, early 1700s. The apostle closes this excellent discourse, that is Romans 8, on the privileges of believers with a holy triumph in the name of all the saints. Having largely set forth the mystery of God's love to us in Christ and the exceedingly great and precious privileges we enjoy by him, he concludes like an orator. What shall we then say to these things? What use shall we make of all that has been said? He speaks as one amazed and swallowed up with the contemplation and admiration of it, wondering at the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ which passes understanding. The more we know of other things, the less we wonder at them. But the further we are led into an acquaintance with gospel mysteries, the more we are affected with admiration of them. If Paul was at a loss what to say to these things, no marvel if we be. And what does he say? Why, if ever Paul rode in a triumphant chariot on this side of heaven, here it was with such a holy height and bravery of spirit, with such a fluency and copiousness of expression, does he here comfort himself and all the people of God on the consideration of these privileges? Now, as we come and we hear those questions, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? 
a string of questions that is here. I want us to see that there's a bit of Old Testament background for this. But notice just quickly, there's a hint that this is a messianic passage or it's a prophecy of Jesus. See it there in verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And very plainly, the writer of Luke's gospel, Luke, believes that this is referring to Jesus, for he includes the latter part of verse 7, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. And now this language that seems to speak of the Lord Jesus being vindicated, he who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me, who will declare me guilty. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. So Isaiah, speaking in this messianic passage, defends and clears our Messiah. Paul, under inspiration, takes this section where God is defending and clearing his eternal son, and Paul adapts this to God defending and clearing his adopted sons and daughters. So we don't want to miss, we don't have time to look at this in detail, but we at least see the connection. What is the Bible doing asking us all these questions? I thought the Bible was to give us information. We're the ones with the questions. Well, here are seven directing questions. And you see them put, uh, the latter six are together as pairs, as couplets of questions. The first question is a transitional therefore. It's an unusual transition for most Greek writers other than the Apostle Paul, but he uses it all the way back, 3, 5, 4, 1. And he comes, he's just given us that rich theological proverb, and then he says, all right, what are we going to say to this? Here's all of this truth, God for loving, predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying. This is a massive amount of rich truth. What are we going to do with it? So it says, therefore, and therefore is in the question, what then, what therefore shall we say to these things? So this first question is not unique, nor is it specifically related to our new paragraph. It's like he is saying, note well what I have said. It's been a mouthful of truth. Now, the first pair of questions focuses on God's commitment to fight for us. Do you see it there, latter part of verse 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, I pity whoever is going up against omnipotence. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We do need things. 
We need spiritual help. We need physical sustenance. We need daily bread if we are going to persevere the race and enter into the castle of heaven. But if he's done the first part, he's going to carry us along. The second pair of questions focuses on whether or not God could ever view us as guilty. Here's the real close reflection on that Isaiah 50 passage. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? This is like two sides of the same question. You see how this this couplet goes together. It focuses on whether or not God could ever view us as guilty. And then the third pair of questions focuses on the durability of God's love in Christ for us. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? But the second question really depends on the first. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? You need the first question to really understand the sense of the second question, but it is on God's enduring love for today. There's a lot about questions up here. Well, there's a lot of questions in the passage. And I want us to see them as a group and see the first one. We've already said, therefore. So we're setting the first one to the side. But we're going to take the next four and leave the last two for another week. So for this morning, our outline is a first question regarding God's success and we're starting in the latter half of verse 31. A second question regarding God's willing provision, verse 32. God's ultimate justification of us, verse 33. And a fourth question regarding Christ not condemning us. Do you notice that subtle change there? It's not yellow when it's Christ. It's green. Everything is about God the Father, God the Father, but in the fourth question, we're focusing on what Christ does and making sure that we are not condemned. And with that, we have the privilege now of dropping into our passage and seeing what it has to say for us. Notice with me, Roman number one, a first question regarding God's success with us his success with us or his success in fighting for us would be a fuller version. First of all, A, how is God for us? How is he for us? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For us means acting in our behalf. We are in a fight And God is in the fight with us. He is in the fight for us. And where do we find that God is for us as believers? Well, we don't have to look very far, do we? We have to look all the way back to the two previous verses. He foreloved us. He predestined. 
He called, justified, and glorified. We've got this bridge that's rooted into eternity past, and it goes over to eternity future, and God has loved these individuals, and those whom, those whom, those whom, those whom are carried all the way across the bridge. God is for them. And if you're one of them, God is for us. Paul here makes a challenge, throws down the gauntlet, as it were, dares all the enemies of the saints to do their worst. If God be for us, who can be against us? The ground of the challenge is God's being for us, and thus he sums up all of our privileges. This includes all that God is for us not only reconciled to us and so not against us, but God is in covenant with us and so engaged for us that all of his attributes are for us, his promises for us. All that he is and has and does is to bring his people to heaven. He performs all things for them. He is for them even when he seems to act against them. How is God for us? Now B, who are our enemies? Who are our enemies? Well, the word enemy is not used in verse 31, but the message is, if God is for us, who can be against us? An enemy is somebody who is against you. The devil is against you as a believer, The alluring world is against you as a believer, and your own flesh is against you as a believer. We saw this in Romans 7. There is, as illustrated by some, a house devil that resides within us, so that when the world allures us and wants to pull us off into sin, that little house devil rides up, yeah, yeah, go for it. And when the devil is tempting us and pulling us, there are those seeds of all sin within us that cooperate with the great enemies of our souls. What a contradiction. But there it is in Romans 7. So thirdly, having asked, how is God for us? Who are our enemies? Now thirdly, see, who's going to win? Who's going to win, God or our enemies? If God is for us, who can be against us? And Dr. Boyce, illustrating this, says, I I want you to think of the old kind of balanced scales. And and you're buying peanuts today. And so you got all your peanuts, and it's a lot of peanuts. That represents our enemies and what they're doing to us. So you put all the peanuts on the scale, and that side goes down, and this side goes up, and then Paul says, we're going to take the anvil of God being forced, we're going to drop that on the other side of the scale, and the peanuts are all scattered. They're all gone. If God is for us, who can be against us? All that God is, and has, and does, is for his people. 
God is for them, even when he seems to act against them. And if so, who can be against us so as to prevail against us and to hinder our eternal happiness? Let Satan do his work. Let him do his worst work. He is chained. Let the world do its worst. It is conquered. Principalities and powers are spoiled and disarmed and triumphed over in the cross of Christ. Who then dares fighting against us while God is fighting for us? So there's the first question. The question regarding God's success in fighting for us sounds pretty successful. Roman numeral two is the second question regarding God's willing provision for us. This now, verse 32. What is the greater gift God has given? And I put greater in there because Paul is using the argument of the greater to the lesser. But I might want to put in there, what is the greatest gift that God has given? He, that now, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, there's the greatest gift. How will he not also with him graciously or freely give us all things? So we're looking at the greater gift, the greatest gift. Little number one there described in the negative, who did not spare his own son. God did not spare his own son. What does sparing mean? Well, God speaks to Abraham back there in Genesis 22, and he says to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you were willing to offer your son. But it's more in the language of you have not withheld your son. You were willing to offer him. And it brings us into this realm of the language of God not sparing his own son. God has many sons by adoption. But he only has one son who has been his son for all eternity. And the Bible is plain to make that distinction. Sparing, what does it mean? Well, we hear about parents sparing their children when they do not give them the pain on the backside that that child deserves and needs to change for the future. Judges spare criminals when they do not pronounce a sentence that fits their crime and they end up walking out of prison in a very short period of time. Dr. Murray says, by way of contrast, this is not what God the Father did. He did not spare his son. He did not withhold or lighten one bit of the full judgment executed on his own begotten son. No lessening of the stroke, for it pleased the Father to bruise him. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Luther says, Think about it. Picture well you having your own son. And that son of yours, that physical son of yours, is the only son 
that you have. And this son is intelligent and wise and sensible and pious and good. He is your very dear only son. And for the sake of a miserable, strange servant who also owed you a huge debt, you now spared not this your dear son, but delivered him up to death just in order to receive, to take care of this miserable, strange servant who owes you a bunch of money. Are you going to do that? Am I going to do that? But that's what God does. And if that miserable, strange servant who owes God money at the end of all of this love of the Father and this love of the Son, if that miserable servant does not appreciate what God has done, then is God just going to sit by in, in silence? Is God not going to have any feelings about that? This is why there is hell. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? God has given, he did not spare his own son for the sake of a miserable, strange servant that owed him a great debt. Number two. Little number two, we've seen little number one described in the negative. Now, little number two, you guessed it, described in the positive. But gave him up for us all. God gave him, gave his own son. He gave his own son to be sin and to be the curse for sin. Does that sound a little exaggerated? Well, listen to Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the father delivered his own son to the damnation that was involved in his death on the cross, and that hellish darkness that came at noonday. And, and God gave him up. Jesus is speaking to the chief priests, the temple officers, the elders, evil men, working with evil angels to put Jesus on the cross. But ultimately, God put him there. But listen to this text. Jesus speaks in the Garden of Gethsemane as they come to grab him, take him to his trial and on to the cross. Luke twenty two fifty three. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour. And the power of darkness. You evil men are out here tonight to get me because you wouldn't do it in the daytime fearing the multitude. And as you do this, I know that you are in connection with the powers of darkness. 
And if we turn this in our mind, I think we'll agree with Professor Murray that there's a sense in which God, in not sparing his son, not lessening the impact on him, it's like God pulled back and said, devil, and all you evil angels, you do whatever you want. I'm not sparing my son. But it is ultimately the Lord Jesus who delivered him up. It was not ultimately Judah for the money, though Judas for the money, though that is true. It was not Pilate for fear, though that is true. Not the Jews for envy, though that is true. But ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ gave up his own eternal son for the sake of the miserable, strange servants that owe him a great debt. God gave up his son further for us all. The us all is defined by our theological proverb. The us all are those that God has loved. The us all are those who are called and justified and are glorified. The us all are those who are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. For us all means in behalf of us all. Listen now, Peter puts it. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. We deserve to die. He did not. He dies in our place that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh. And Professor Murray talks of how Gethsemane and Calvary, you, you can't appreciate them. What Jesus did in the garden, what Jesus did on the cross, without seeing that it is the Father who is giving Jesus up so that the enemies of God could do their worst on the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry again. Observe what God has done for us, on which our hopes are built. He spared not his own son. When Jesus was to undertake our salvation, the Father was willing to part with him. The Father did not think Jesus too precious a gift to bestow for the salvation of poor souls. And as God told Abraham, now I know you love me because you were willing to give up your son, and so we may know that God abundantly loves us because he gave his only begotten son. It's as though God reasons, well, if nothing else will save man, rather than man perish, let my son go to the cross. Thus did the Father deliver him up for us all, not only for our good, but in our place, a sacrifice to deal with the wrath of God in our behalf. Well, this morning, how do we respond? What shall we say to these things? What's our therefore? 
God has loved us from eternity past, and now we're looking particularly at how God justified us. He gave his son, his only son, his eternal son, for all these adopted sons and daughters. Child of God, is there a crisis in your life that is bad enough to warrant you not praising your God this morning? In light of this passage, I don't know what that crisis could be. Jesus Christ gave his perfect life and his perfect sacrificial death for us. Let us praise him for his love. First of all, A, was what is the greatest gift? B, what are the lesser gifts that God will give? And here we're in the latter part of verse 32. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus is the greatest gift. Now we need some other things, yes, to get us on to heaven. But think of it like this. God has given the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with our sins. God has ordained that we will have an inheritance in heaven. We're going to be in that great palace of God. And if he's done this to get us there, then is God going to give us the spending money to get us there? He will give us all those lesser things along the way. And this is how, by faith, we argue against our fears that we are going to lack something and that ultimately we're not going to make it to heaven. No, if God has given so much thought to this, if God is for us, if God is for us and that he has given his eternal son, then is he not going to give us those things that are lacking, those things that are necessary to get us there to heaven? Roman number one, a question regarding God's success. A second question regarding God's willing provision. Thirdly, a third question regarding God's ultimate justification of us. Now in verse 33, how are believers described? This is A. How are believers described in verse 33? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Elect. It's a Bible word. If we look at the King James, we find who shall lay any charge, anything to the charge of God's elect. Little difference in wording, but elect is there. New King James, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? New American Standard, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Whatever word changes there may be, these two words are the same God's elect. And what does it mean when God elects someone? or God chooses someone. That's how the verb is used in Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, this word is used of humans. You remember the story of Martha and Mary. 
Martha invites Jesus into the home. Jesus is teaching, and Mary chooses that she is going to be in the living room listening to Jesus, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she's not going to be in the kitchen with Martha. And Martha says, Jesus, tell her to get out here. But the point is that even with this extra pressure on Mary, Mary chooses, same word. Mary elects to be there in the living room at the feet of Jesus Christ. Even with external pressures on her, Mary has the right to choose where she is. Does God have less rights in his choosing than Mary does? God's choice is sovereign. God's elect. Those whom God has chosen. Those that God for love, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Secondly, B, how will enemies attack the children of God? So we first ask, how are believers described? We notice it quickly in passing. They're described as God's elect. Secondly, B, how will enemies attack God's children? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, who's going to do that? Well, the word Satan means accuser. And as one has written, there has never been a shortage of enemies to make accusations against God's people. Do you feel that to be true? I do. Paul means not that there will be no accusation, But he means that there's not going to be any accusation that is going to stand up in God's court at the end of time. Does the law accuse them? Yes, times. Do their own consciences accuse them? Is the devil, the accuser of the brethren, accusing them before God day and night? This verse is enough to answer all these accusations. It is God who justifies. So, how are believers described, elect? How will enemies work against us? They will bring accusations. And what is the definitive answer? This is C to these charges. It's a very simple, straightforward sentence it is God who declares us righteous. It is God who justifies. God gave us back in Romans 5 the first Adam and the last Adam. And we're all hanging on Adam's belt, the first Adam's belt. But when Jesus dies, he's representing many of those. And if we're believers in Christ, then we're on Christ's belt. And God is going to justify us on the basis of what his son did in our behalf. It's a theological statement that God justifies us in grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. 
and just listen to this little bit of Romans 3, 23 and 24, 25. For all who sinned and fall short to the glory of God, they need someone to help get them righteous and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith. They're all all three there. God's grace by faith in Christ alone. Men may justify themselves as the Pharisees did, and you have to be careful that you do not justify yourself when God has not justified you. If you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't come to the cross of Christ and said, here's my sin, may I have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you have not done that, you are not justified. You are not declared righteous. Men may justify themselves as the Pharisees did, and yet God's accusations may be in full force against them. However, when God justifies, this answers all charges. He's the one who justifies. He's the judge, he's the king, he's the party that was offended. His judgment is according to truth. And listen to this line. And sooner or later, all the world will be brought to agree with God's opinion. Enemies may try to bring us down. But after a few millennia of being in heaven... They'll recognize God's justification stands. Therefore, we may challenge all our accusers to come and put in their charge and accusation. And this verse overthrows all their effort to hurt us. It is God, the righteous, faithful God, that justifies by his grace alone, by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Fourthly, Roman numeral four. A fourth question regarding Christ not condemning us. First of all, A, where can evil men get us condemned? Well, they can get us condemned in human courts here in this world, in this time. Jesus gave his ordination sermon to the apostles, and he didn't simply tell them, he did not tell them, it's going to be great. It's going to be fun. No, that's not exactly what he said to them. But rather he said, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. A little later, Matthew 10, verse 21. Brother will deliver up brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Where can evil men get us condemned? Evil men got Stephen condemned at a court in Jerusalem and he was stoned. 
not in a court. Evil men can get our author of Romans, the great apostle Paul, executed at Rome. So Paul is not saying here, well, the suffering that you're going to have, I'm guaranteeing you're never going to face suffering. No, he was executed as a martyr. But Jesus' advice is, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I think it's very helpful if we think in terms of there are courts here among men on earth and there is a court up there in heaven And we need to concern ourselves with the court that is going to meet at the last day, and we ought not to be concerned about the court of men. Primitive Christians had many black crimes laid to their charge, heresy, sedition, rebellion, and whatnot. For these, the ruling powers condemned them. But no matter for that, says the apostle, While we stand right in God's court, it is of no great moment how we stand at man's court. Against all the censures, all the slander, all the persecution, we can put that on one side of the scale and then bring to the other side the counterweight that it is God who justifies. And this is why Paul says, it's a very small thing to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes the purposes, the motives of the heart, then each one will receive his condemnation. Where can evil men get us condemned? Here in man's court. Secondly, B. Who is the judge of heaven's court? Who is the judge of the universe? Now follow closely Paul's logic. Who is to condemn? And then he starts talking about Christ Jesus. Why is that? Well, Jesus is the judge of the universe. He knew this. Fairly early in his ministry, John 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He goes on in verse 28 to say of John 5, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, come out, and those who have done good to a resurrection of life, those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus says, I have the authority to judge the world. I speak, and they're all going to be popping out of their tombs, joined together again with their souls, and they're going to stand before me as I judge them. That's Jesus. Paul, speaking to pagans in an evangelistic sermon, lays it out 
that the times of ignorance God has overlooked, things in the past, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that man, the judge, from the dead. Where can evil men get us condemned? This world. Who is the judge? Jesus Christ. Thirdly, see, what has the judge done for us? What has the judge done for us? And this is really wonderful. Because you hear that question, you say, what has the judge done? Well, the judge is not supposed to have anything to do with you. The judge is to be impartial. Not in God's book. Because the judge is God. God can't be impartial. It's absolutely fair. But if God has started loving some in eternity past, he might have feelings on how the outcome is going to come. And then notice with me that there are here in verse 34... We're no longer talking about God, God the Father. We're talking about Jesus Christ the Son. Evil men will oppose us and will kill some of us. Some of you. Some of you sitting under the sound of my voice may be a martyr for the Christian faith. Our enemies would send us to hell if they could but they can't. And do you know why they can't? Because Jesus is the judge. And what has the judge done for us? Well, here are four reasons why evil men cannot take heaven from us. Number one, Jesus gave himself in death as a sacrifice for us. You see it there in verse 34? Christ Jesus is the one who died. It's a very brief statement. But if you just think about it, the Son of God has died. It calls for our reflection. It's by the merit of Jesus that he paid the debt of our sin, the just for the unjust. Christ died. What's the second reason that evil men are not going to be able to take heaven from us? Number two, next line in verse 34. More than that, who was raised? Number two is, Jesus was raised as proof of the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice. More than that, who was raised? Christ died, but Paul is saying, you know what? Jesus' resurrection is more powerful to us Because it shows that when he died as an offering for sin, the Father was pleased with that, and the Father raised him from the dead. If Jesus had died and never been raised, you and I would not be sitting here this morning worshiping God, would we? Because the gospel would fall apart. But he did die, and he was raised. 
And his resurrection is proof that the father smiled on his sacrifice and death. And furthermore, we have a living Lord. Not a Lord who once was alive and is dead, but one who is alive to further care for his own. Thirdly, third line of evidence why evil men cannot pull heaven from us. Number three, Jesus was installed in a position of highest honor and greatest power, who is at the right hand of God. It speaks of his sovereignty and his dominion. The resurrected Christ says, all authority has been given to me. And if someone in the world, evil men, evil spirits, are trying to pull you down, there is a Jesus who has died, who was raised again, who is seated at the right hand of majesty, and he can use all of his authority and all of his divine omnipotence to protect you and me. Fourthly, fourth line of thought, Jesus ever lives to intercede for us to assure our safe arrival, who indeed is interceding for us. He died for our sins. He was raised as a proof of our justification. He was enthroned on high, and from that throne, he begs the Father for your and my good. I wonder if it's going to work. I wonder if any believer is going to make it to heaven. Every need of the believer and every grace necessary for the believer to persevere. Jesus knows what those things are. And Jesus is praying for those things. Just as in Hebrews 7, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. You remember how Paul, just back in verse 26 and verse 27, talked about the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, prompting these groans that come out of us. And now, just a few verses later, we've got Jesus Christ. He died for our sins, raised for our justification, enthroned in a place on high, and from that throne, he is interceding ongoing activity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing assures us of his unchanging love more than the tenderness of Jesus proactively loving us now by praying so effectually for us. He knows your individual case. And whatever particular needs you have, let us believe that our all-knowing, all-powerful Jesus is intervening for us. You see how things are stacked in the favor of believers? Who is he who condemns? Who's going to be effective? Christ Jesus has died. Christ Jesus, who is the judge. He's not going to condemn you. 
He's not going to condemn you because he died for you. He was raised for your justification. He's enthroned and high in a place of authority. And he's there tenderly pleading for you. Who is he who condemns? Understand what Paul is saying here. And you will be on the way to living in what the writer to the Hebrews said was the full assurance of faith. I believe that I am a state of grace. And I believe that God is going to manage to get me home. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. What have we seen this morning? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Holy Spirit is praying for us. The Lord Jesus has died and is praying for us. It's the Father who is for loving, predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying. That's all that there is that is not created. Nor any other created thing when the Trinity is committed to your and my good. Let us thank our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Apostle Paul, under inspiration, has not run out of things to say. But there is a richness here. There is a triumphant ride in the chariot, extolling your grace and your mercy. And we thank you, our God, 
that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you have saved us. And then having saved us, you've given us all this rich truth that will encourage us and lead us to heaven. Father, we pray for those who sit here this morning who are not believers. If God is for us, who can be against us? But if God is against us, what does it matter who is for us? If you are against us, if your omnipotence is against us, it doesn't matter if all the world is for us. We pray our God for some who may be slaves to the popularity of the world. Oh God, work and make them to be friends of the judge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.